And now, it's time for a Star Trek story. You know, Aaron, um, on on Star Trek stories, we have talked about both heroes and villains. Um, and they certainly pop up a lot in Star Trek. Every uh, now and again. Every now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, or protagonists and antagonists, if you so prefer. Um, but that brings up a secondary question. Um what do you think, Aaron, makes a good secondary protagonist or antagonist for every Batman and Joker? We have Robin and the Riddler, <laughs> the the the, not, the 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 non-focal point protagonist antagonist. So, what do you think makes a good secondary protagonist or antagonist? Oof, yeah. Sometimes you do need to just switch it up. Yeah. When you're telling a story like Batman it's naturally just going to get bigger and bigger mm. and more characters are going to come in. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, do they need to stay? Not necessarily, mm. but a lot of them end up staying like mm. Azrael. It's like, does that guy need to be here <laughs> <laughs> all the time? Just Maybe. to kind of add a little spice. Yeah. Sometimes every now when and he pops then. An Azrael adventure and then he goes away and we just have Batman again and that's fine. Yeah. You can only have chocolate ice cream so many times. It's like, you know, here's butter pecan. Here's yeah. a strawberry. Sure. <laughs> now back to chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Um, Star Trek has lots of, lots of, and depending on the series, um, yeah, lots of little secondary um, characters, both like heroes and villains. So we'll get a jump into that today on today's episode of Star Trek Stories. Um, <sighs> yay! This is episode 39, The Wounded. Um, I, of course, am your heroic host, Jaron Hatch, and I'm joined here by my diabolical co-host, Aaron Cole. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, we are making good progress in our look at the TNG Glory Years. Um, last time we watched Data's Day, um, where we had our good friend of the podcast, Ellen on, and we took a little peek into a day in the life of our favorite android, Mr. Data. It was a day to day. Day to day, data's day. Data's day to day. Life of data to day. This week, uh, we have a new guest on with us. Um, joining the podcast with us today, um, we have the very lovely Dallas Fawson on with us today. Hello. Dallas. Hello, video podcast world. (laughs) Um, Dallas, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, What's new? What's shaking? Uh, Not a whole lot. Um, I'm working on a goal recently where I want to make a food from every Spanish-speaking country. And next, I think I'm going to do Bolivian peanut soup. Bolivian nice. peanut soup. Oh my god, we're gonna have to have you back on the episode just so I can hear how it, how it, <laughs> yeah. How it turns out. Yeah, we'll see. It, it uses peanuts in an atypical way, which is raw and ground, so using them more as a pea and less mm. as a nut. So. Mm. Are you a chef? Are you a cook? Is that what you do? No, I I enjoy cooking pretty easy things, but I don't do any kind of technical cooking. Mm. Gotcha. That does seem like a chefy venture. Cooking. I'm gonna go every South American country and pick a dish. Yeah, yeah. fair well, enough. Yeah, uh, you. But you do have a lot of interest in South America, at like generally speaking, if I recall. Yes. Yeah, uh, Latin America more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, my educational backgrounds in Spanish and Portuguese, mm. and like kind of history and literature to go with that. Mm. Um, yeah. So for those of you who don't know. Um, Dallas is actually my metamor, <laughs> I, I believe is the correct term. For those who aren't in the know, um, metamor is a term in polyamory, which means we are we know each other because we're dating the same person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that person, of course, being the very lovely Jenny Beale, who is also watching in the shadows. <laughs> 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 not right next to us. <laughs> not, not right next to us. <laughs> watching, watching in the shadows. Um, so one of the things that kind of um, 
I don't know, we've had like an initial bond over is, um, you have a a love of fantasy and sci-fi and that sort of things. We definitely bonded over our shared love of the sixties twilight zone. Yes. (laughs) We were trying to leave the bar and we're going, Oh, what about this episode? Oh, what about this (laughs) episode? What about this episode? Oh my God, that's so good. I remember it fondly. (laughs) Um, but, um, because there's lots of other, you know, people who love genre entertainment, but you also are very much someone who is into um, language and like, philosophy and culture and some of these other things, spirituality. Um, and um, I myself am someone who, in particular, like I really enjoy, you know, anthropology and and history. And I, when I'm doing my reading, I go between you know, those subjects and my sci-fi and my fantasy and everything. So, um, as like a fellow academic nerd, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, is there, is there a conscious link between, I don't know, some of this genre entertainment for you and then some of these kind of like things regarding culture, language, mm. stuff like that? Um, I think, I think genre can be a way to express cultural ideas and aspirations much as i don't particularly care for them i think the marvel superhero trope the the, that type of superhero feels very american to me kind of a projection of a very specific american ideal um but i think that can also be true of horror expressing not only personal fears but cultural collective fears so like right now with latin american writers you have a a big movement with female writers specifically where a lot of the horror is based in how frightening it is to live in a very violent region full of machismo so a lot of people i know will kind of disparage genre fiction or anything operating within a genre but i've always found that really myopic and unfair Mm, yeah i think it is really um, easy um, to not give genre entertainment enough credit. Uh, certainly sci-fi. I think sci-fi probably reigns supreme in terms of it's usually about something, not always. Sure. Um, but across the board, um, you know, Song of Ice and Fire is very much a, if you read the books, it's very much a historical analysis of, you know, monarchies and stuff um yeah i've only read the first of the books but there was a lot in that that had never occurred to me even reading a lot of history i remember early on talking about somebody using the wrong kind of horse for the um for the strategic scenario they were in like the horse was too large mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and then i was looking it up afterwards and yeah it's based in reality despite the setting mm-hmm. you know we're here watching star trek today yeah um and for me personally, like Star Trek very much is at like a, an apex of my, some of my shared loves of like culture, um, history, and then sci-fi and like Star Trek is, it, it, there's a lot of blending of all these things in a Star Trek. I'm curious though, like, I know you've watched Star Trek, but if I recall, you haven't seen a lot. What's your, what's your history and connection with Star Trek? In essence, I have truly watching taking the time to be present and think about it, I have seen one episode of Star Trek. And that was when I was get, I was in graduate school for languages and literature, and I had a critical theory class. And the professor who taught it, um, Esther Rashkin, who's probably the most prestigious person in that department at the University of Utah, had us watch what she thought was the greatest ever filmed exploration of language, which is the episode Darmok. And we had an assignment based on it, which was whether the language that they were speaking in that, I don't remember the name of the... The Tamarian language. The Tamarian language. Whether or not it was a Caesarian language. Mm. And I will be honest and say I don't really remember now what that means, but I do remember (laughs) the answer is no, it is not, because if you don't know the cultural references that make up their language, Mm. then there's no possible way to understand it. Mm. And that's something that really stuck with me, and I've meant to watch more because I thought that was just such a great Great episode. episode. Yeah, That's funny. My wife took the same class at uh, Oregon. Oh, yeah. For political science something. But yeah, Mm. that's hilarious. Yeah, Yeah. that's interesting. Awesome. Well, then we're going to get to, um, I guess, be your number two. 
Uh, <laughs> All right. Per, uh, about it. Appropriate for our uh, question for today about secondary. <laughs> this is my secondary episode of Star Trek. Um, going back to a question from earlier, um, what do you think makes a good um, like secondary protagonist or antagonist um, in, in stories or storytelling? Yeah, I was thinking about that a little bit, and I don't know that this is what makes them good. Maybe I'm not directly answering your question, but to me, a lot of times the value of a secondary protagonist or antagonist is they can operate more in extremes without you getting tired of that. Um, I think about kind of a silly example, I think Kramer in Seinfeld, where if he were more prominent in that, you would be so sick of him. But because he's more in the background, he can be this silly extreme character. Mm. And right now I'm reading... um, Moby Dick. I think one of the mates in it, um, Flask, is just so silly, almost on a slapstick kind of level. Like he hates being short, so he'll jump up on the shoulders of these tall, tall harpooners for a better view. Where again, I think if he were more prominent in the story, it would just be too much. Yeah, it would be too much. But as a secondary and a side character operating in the extreme can work and add mm. add variety. Mm. So that's why your Azrael is there. Yeah, that's why Israel's there. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he can he can fight the Christian fight for Batman. That yeah, he wants to fight so badly. <laughs> or uh, Red Hood can actually kill people with guns, whereas Batman doesn't. You know, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I guess we can get into this episode and see if Star Trek um, sheds any light on what makes a good secondary antagonist or protagonist. Um, yes, today we are watching The Wounded. Um, this premiered January 28th, 1991. This is the 12th episode produced for the fourth season, um, which makes it almost the exact middle point of the entire series of Next Generation. We are basically like smack dab in the middle of the show. Um, so as we've been watching Next Gen, we've had occasional appearances from background character Chief O'Brien. Um, the ship's transporter chief. Um, Everybody loves him. Everyone loves him. Um, up up until this point in the show, so he's been around since the pilot. Um, he has like a one line speaking extra role in the first pilot, uh, and then the producers use him a few more times in the early seasons, and then end up liking him so much um, that his part keeps getting a little bigger and bigger. Like they give him a name, they give him a job. In the in the last episode we watched, he got married. Um, so he like call Meanie, the actor as Chief O'Brien is is the the ultimate the little extra that could <laughs> story. Um, so this episode is the first time he gets to be center stage, um, focal point of the whole, of the episode. And TNG always likes to do you know stories where they kind of hone in on a character and kind of look at something from someone's point of view. And um, but this is the first time the franchise, I think did an episode from the point of view of just one of the, like, who's basically been a glorified background character up until this point. So, um, yeah, that should make that one, make that an interesting aspect to look at in this episode. Um, this is also the franchise debut of the Cardassians. Um, at this point in the franchise, we've had a few recurring enemy races. We've had the Klingons who were in the 60s show. They were basically the stand-ins for like, they were basically the Cold War evil space Soviets. <laughs> um, um, and then we also have the Romulans, who are basically the evil space Roman Empire. <laughs> um, and they pop up pretty frequently in TNG. So at this point, um, the producers, um, they realize, well, we need another foe to kind of change things up. We can't just keep going back to the Romulans or, you know, whoever. So... Um, they came up with the Cardassians who are evil space fascists. (laughs) Um, so we'll get to see how they, um, play in their debut episode. Um, should be a lot of fun. Attention all Bajoran workers. (laughs) The Bajoran machine is down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. For those of you at home who are going to watch along with us, Star Trek The Next Generation is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. You can find it by bringing up Season 4, Episode 12, and we will be back after we watch The Wounded.
Gaynar. I never could develop a taste for it. it takes a bit of getting used to. <laughs> I wanted to say I... I owe you an apology. I shouldn't have popped off like that in the turbulent. I think... Here's your ale, Mr. O'Brien. This has been hard on all of us. I know I'll be happy when I'm back on my own ship. I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about that. I was on Setlick 3 with Captain Maxwell the morning after the massacre. We were too late, of course. Almost everyone was dead. It was a terrible mistake. We were told the outpost was a launching place for a massive attack against us. The only people left alive were in an outlying district of the settlement. I was sent there with a squad to reinforce them. Cardassians were advancing on us, moving through the streets, destroying, killing. I was with a group of women and children when two Cardassian soldiers burst in. I stunned one of them. The other one jumped me. We struggled. One of the women threw me a phaser and I fired. The phaser was set at maximum. The man just, just incinerated there before my eyes. I'd never killed anything before. When I was a kid, I'd, I'd worry about swatting a mosquito. It's not you I hate, Cardassian. I hate what I became. Because of you. We just got done watching The Wounded, um, in case you've never seen this one, didn't watch it with us. So in this one, a Starfleet captain goes rogue and apparently starts launching unprovoked attack against Cardassian ships. And Captain Picard and crew have to go after him with the help of some other Cardassians. And Picard is tasked with like, keeping the peace at all costs. It's also revealed that our favorite Chief O'Brien used to serve with um, Captain Maxwell, who's gone rogue and was on Setlick 3, the planet they were both on when the Cardassians attacked during a war. And Carda uh, Chief O'Brien has feelings about the Cardassians. And eventually they track him down. Maxwell says that he's figured out the Cardassians are arming for war again. Um, but in the end, like uh, Chief O'Brien is able to like talk him down from starting a war and um they bring him in uh but meanwhile uh picard pretty, pretty much figures out that maxwell actually was right and leaves the cardassians that are helping them with a little final note of tell your people goma set we will be watching <laughs> um uh we always start with initial thoughts um dallas initial thoughts coming on um for the wounded very generally i liked it um, I thought I was impressed by how complex it was with characters and character motivation. I was expecting the captain of the Phoenix to come on, uh, Maxwell and have it be, oh, this is the explanation for why I did what I did. So it was all okay. And now the good guys are going to come through and it wasn't that, uh, I, I thought there was a lot it had to say about how an individual can represent a collective um, it, I was actually it, I it found it had me thinking a lot about World War One and what led up to 
World War One. One of the things I was thinking about is everybody wanting to be preemptive where I'm going to do this before they inevitably do the same thing. So what you have are a bunch of countries that are armed to the teeth. And another thing I enjoyed uh, briefly is that Maxwell probably being correct in his assessment did not matter at all because of the actions that he took. Right. It it was never justified, even if it was the, if he was correct in his assessment. Yeah. Um, there's definitely some biases. Um, that's really interesting. There was an interesting that moment at the end of the episode when they're singing the song, mm-hmm. O'Brien and Maxwell. You're looking at kind of the same man in that moment. You know what I mean? In that moment, I don't think Brian hates the Cardassians anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like he's he's looking at his captain like, oh, shit, this is what it's going to be in 20 years if I don't examine myself, right? Mm. It was very poignant in that moment. Mm, I'm turning into this guy that I used to look up to and admire. I thought O'Brien was the emotional center of that episode. And I was also thinking about the largely unrelated to larger scope scenes with him and, as far as I can tell, his recent wife. Um, But then wanting to make food for, like, communicating something about who he is to somebody from somewhere else, where it seems like he's trying to do that on some level with the Carassians Mm. as well. Mm. Very interesting. Um, Yeah, Aaron, initial thoughts coming on from The Wounded. It goes into a little bit of, like, PTSD for for soldiers. Yeah, for sure. Which is tough to tackle. It's a very sensitive subject. Hard to do well. I felt like they handled it very well. Mm. Um, just no fun decisions in this episode to make for anybody. Yeah, very serious. Um, n- not a lot of humor, or if any humor, Um I don't think they're like, if, if we had a laugh, I think it was just us making some comment, you know, while watching, but the episode itself is pretty, pretty serious and somber. Um, yeah, I really like this one. Um, I really like, uh, and then one, one thing I was just watching or paying attention to in this one. And, and once again, we've talked about him a few times, but Patrick Stewart's Jean-Luc Picard, um, even, even though this is very much, you know, Brian episode, um, I mean, Picard gets a lot of screen time. Um, and he's the one who has to make really the big decisions while O'Brien kind of has to like, emo- like the emotional conflict is more with O'Brien and the larger like meta conflict is kind of more with Picard. Um, watching Picard in this, I'm just like uh, flawless, like in terms of like his decision making and how he handles his every situation and also Patrick Stewart and playing it. I'm just like flawless, just handles everything perfectly. And it's like, and you don't see a lot of that in shows. It's like, it's not like, but to have someone just like, it, I think it's so valuable to have someone like a, an example of like, here's how you handle these situations. Um, it doesn't make him a not interesting character. If anything, he, he's incredibly compelling because um, he still feels very human um, despite all that. But I just watching him do his thing. I'm like, yeah, this is I can't imagine anyone handling this situation <laughs> more perfectly. There are a couple moments that felt like more just creative for drama than anything. Mm. Like when they were only moving at warp four. <laughs> to catch up with the Phoenix initially. And then Phoenix blows up the ship with 650 people. And then mm-hmm. they're like, okay, now go to warp nine. You were going like, warp nine the like, whole time. <laughs> he's already killed people. Why aren't we already going at max speed? There are little moments like that. All right, data warp two. <laughs> <laughs> we're going slower now. <laughs> yeah. I was actually waiting for the, the negative consequence of going warp nine that, was preventing them from doing it initially. So yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think the idea with like the warp nine is that it is incredibly taxing on the engines and which is why they don't default to it. But a lot of times it's just, all right, warp nine. And then you never, I think that's more of like, if you've watched the show, you know, there have been times where it's like captain, like the engines are about to blow. We have to shut it down. So in times like this, there's like, eh, you want, I don't know, whatever, you know, <laughs> the other moment was when, they let Maxwell take command of his vessel again after 
he confessed everything. I like, know. Never in a million years no. would that happen. Straight like, to the brig. Come on. Do not do not pass go. <laughs> Picard, what were you thinking? Yeah, I am. Um, and like no word of protest from the Cardassians. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, you know what? We're okay with it. Give him all his weapons back. He'll see himself out. <laughs> he learned his lesson, I feel. Yeah, there's definitely a, a couple of uh, a plot conveniences or right. contrivances, but... Uh, not too bad. I feel, I feel like as a whole, the plot otherwise more or less um, plays really well. Um, so, you know, this being, so we've, we've, and like you said, Dallas, like, you know, Chief O'Brien is very much like the emotional center of the episode. So how do we feel about him? So this is a case where you now you have like, he's been in the background. I mean, you haven't really watched it so much Dallas, but he's front and center in this one. How does he play? How do we think he plays as like a protagonist, a central character um, with like, you know, does he, does he step up to like, say like Patrick Stewart or the other crew members in terms of where he needs to be? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I found myself in some ways a little bit unsure about how to feel about him and particularly his view of the Carassians. Cardassians. Yeah, I, I liked the um, the points he was making earlier. I think about collective hatred after a conflict, where it's really hard to overnight say that I no longer resent Poland or whoever for what happened during the last four years. So there's a small moment I like where he's telling his wife he doesn't resent the, them, and she gives them this sort of skeptical look. Um, so I really liked that portion of it with him talking about the effects of the war. I don't hate you. I hate what, what, like what I became. Yeah. What because I became of you. because of, um, because of you. I thought that was an interesting approach to xenophobia. I don't know how accurate that is. And I, I feel like he pulls through as a protagonist in this episode, but I, I, maybe he's, whether he's at the um, like the height of Picard, I don't know, but I think he's a very different protagonist. He's not there to make things happen. He's there as kind of an advisory role, and incidentally, again, plays that emotional role, which is how he wins over mm-hmm. the captain. Yeah, Picard is you know like the paragon of virtue um, who has to make the decisions. O'Brien is definitely much closer to just. I mean, he's like the ultimate everyman. Like he's just kind of written to be like the rest of us who kind of have to like, I don't have a lot of power in this situation, but my conflict is trying to have to like to process and deal with it internally. And then how can I contribute to saving the day? So yeah, makes him a very interesting, unique kind of protagonist, puts him in an interesting perspective. I, I also liked where he was so sure the whole time that the, that Captain Maxwell had to have a valid reason. And then when it turned out that wasn't the case, he was able to acknowledge that and move on. And that was, I was also thinking about something you said earlier, where part of what makes Captain Maxwell intriguing, but also really dangerous, is that on the surface, he's this put-together, successful person with a story career, storied career. But then almost as soon as you hear him talking, like, oh, that's been festering and... Mm-hmm. We had to act now. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. That moment you th- when you did, it just pops. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Aaron? Uh, I mean, we've been watching it together. Um, how do you think specifically he like compares to like the main crew or maybe like may- what does he bring to the table that maybe the other main characters don't in an episode like this? His giant head. <laughs> <laughs> No. I don't know. He's got such a, uh, it is an everyman presence about him naturally. Mm. Uh, you just naturally want to root for him. I feel like when he's on the screen, yeah. There's something about him. Inherently likable kind of meanie as an kind actor. of guy. Yeah. Um, and I love O'Brien just from deep space nine and everything. I've gotten to know that character. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun to see his progression. Like you said, the little extra that I could. It's fun to see him as just as a little one-line guy mm-hmm. to having an entire episode that kind of focused on him. centered around his experiences. Uh, and then pretty soon he becomes, he blossoms into this like full-fledged main character, right? 
Yeah, for those who don't know, he does go on to be one of the main characters in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which also features the Cardassians as like the primary series-long antagonist o- over that show as well. So we get the first, um, the first little like setting the stage for Deep Space Nine in this episode. So that, which also means it's getting a little closer. All of you at home, oh, we're so close. Deep Space Nine is inching ever closer. Yeah, as a protagonist, I think clearly he tests very well. Mm. Um, it's just a good story. Do you yeah. think? How do you think this would have played if they had focused? If there wasn't O'Brien, and say it was like a Jordy episode, just one of the actual main characters is. How do you think that would have affected how this would have gone? Not as well. I think you need like a fresh canvas like mm-hmm. o'brien that you haven't haven't used as much like it's like oh now we're giving jordy this this story with the cardassians all of a sudden that, that has we've never, never been heard. there before right oh oh yeah. by the way for the last four years i've also had huge ptsd about the cardassians. <laughs> right, it just wouldn't work. never come up <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah it, it does allow because they haven't really fleshed him out too much so that does kind of like well we have o'brien let's make that his thing so um, which really kind of informs he's our PTSD guy. He's our PTSD guy. It, I mean, it honestly really informs a lot of his character going on from the rest of his appearances yeah. in this show in deep space. Yeah. I think that can be the use of introducing sort of a new secondary protagonist is we need somebody to fill a role that no established character can fill. So mm. to your point, let's have him be that guy. Mm. Kind of adding new layers to things. Um, yeah. New, per- bringing new perspectives in. Mm. Um, we also have to talk about, um, the Cardassians, um, specifically like our new, uh, secondary antagonists. Yeah. So this is their first appearance. And what do we think? How do they, how do they come across in this debut episode? Do we think? Love them. No notes. (laughs) (laughs) On a superficial level, I quite like the character design. Especially when they like have the, makeup the, and... the metal helmets on. And maybe I was influenced by you referring to them as, as space fascists. Yeah. But they very much had that, I just immediately think of Nazis, that very kind of neat, austere sort of uniform and way of standing and presenting themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can almost imagine like, you know, the, yeah, a Nazi in an SS uniform kind of be just you know very sharp and yeah austere yeah absolutely so much of it works except for like the hair piece on the back has always bugged me for mm. the cardassians mm. they're shouldn't they have feathers or something like they're reptilian I don't know. yeah maybe that's racist i don't want to be a species i mean they, they are i mean they are supposed to be like space lizard reptilian people um and i guess um the the neck ridges were inspired off of like the king cobra that's where that comes from they have these little neck ridges going down um and you know their appearance does change a little bit after this like the uniforms change um you kind of see golma set he's got this little weird go- space goatee or whatever that is the, like in between i'm gonna shave all of my beard except for that right, right. it's almost like yeah like jowl goatee <laughs> like <laughs> Very interesting choice. Amazing. Yeah. You don't see, or like the weird, yeah, they're not quite helmets, but like there's like a a part going or orbiting their head and then going down the center. It's it's a very weird, interesting look. Um, We should also note that uh, Mark Alamo, who um, plays Golmaset, goes on to play Golducott, who is the main Cardassian adversary in D-Space Nine. He's so. just a Cardassian. It's, it's who he, he is. He is the OG. And it's hard not to think of Ducat if, you've know, if you know Ducat. Doesn't he even Some play, of his lines even. Yeah. He even plays like a different Cardassian before he gets to Ducat, right? Or is this the only time? Uh, this is the only oh. time. He does play a few other characters. Like he played a Romulan before this. Yeah. So we see him play a few characters before he like settles into his more famous role of Gold Ducat. But he really kind of sets the the Cardassian tone for all of them going forward. Just that kind of captain, I assure you like snake tongued, um, very kind of 
calm and collected, but just so sinister, you know, behind it all. One interesting thing about this, so this is their debut episode, but at least direct, they aren't the direct antagonist in this episode. I mean, the ultimate threat is like, if things don't go right, they're going to go to war with the Cardassians. But in their debut episode, they instead decide to make a Starfleet officer the bad guy and is acting in bad faith against them. Like, how do you think, I don't know, how does that work for like a first when you're introducing the the easy obvious thing would just to have him show up and be yeah we don't like the border anymore and we're going to war with you and that's not what they do in this episode how do you think that plays or works as a kind of debut for a new villain it's a pretty realistic interpretation of how a war or a conflict could begin like one person acting in his own interest or one group that escalates things beyond control mm. Right, like mm-hmm. World War One. You know. Mm. What, do you, what do you think, Dallas? I, in part, I just think it shows the quality of the writing. Like mm. you said, it, it would be easy to just have. Well, there's been this peace treaty, but we're attacking now. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. And through a lot of the episode, if I hadn't heard it beforehand, I wouldn't have even known that they were going to become a recurring villain in the series so i think the i wouldn't go so far to call it a twist with the the captain of the phoenix but i think ending with that angle with him essentially as the antagonist is really clever Mm. yeah you're right there is no real because this is the first time so you don't really know what to expect yet from them like um and the only thing that really gives a clue that these guys are going to be coming back is the very end when picard is gives his little we will be watching and you're like, Oh yeah, these guys are coming back, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. And it also kind of like hints at or implies the idea that it's not, you know, the Cardassian people per se, like a lot of times in these situations, it's the government and and most of the people, even some of those who are in the military or whatever are innocent, fine people which makes things really messy and murky. So is it, you know, it's not the Cardassians that are the problem. It's the Cardassian government. Um, that's the problem. Those sneaky Cardassians. Mm. I thought that with the, the Cardassian at the bar where he just looks so weary and mm-hmm. here we go again. You're right. Obviously has no interest in it. Then the bureaucracy question is interesting too, because then you also have that with the, the captain of captain of the phoenix where not a legitimate excuse but it's like i i'm just i'm avoiding bureaucratic bullshit and getting the the red tape yeah this cardassian just looks so uncomfortable in this scene to me like (sighs) o'brien telling him he i killed a man (laughs) right he's like oh i just wanted some (laughs) canar cool cool, bro (laughs) sounds like something you should tell deanna troy o'brien Sounds like a you problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that and that's a that's a moment where he's kind of sharing the story, and just like, yeah, I, I vaporized a guy. It's like I've never even killed Dude. a mosquito before. You're like, oh Hi. man, <laughs> I'm Gold Dugor. <laughs> Let's start again, right? <laughs> Let's try this one more time. A little intense. <laughs> um. You know, in some ways, like another uns- like uh, unspoken antagonist of this episode is Starfleet itself. Like, um, and you know, certainly Maxwell. But and we never see what happens on his ship. It's like, does his crew try to stop him? Like, he's apparently he, they're, he's just ordering. They're like, you got it. Let's go get those Cardassians. <laughs> um, Did he lock himself in his quarters? It kind of looked like that. He was like talking on his own. Right, he's just commanding from his quarters. <laughs> he's paranoid of his crew. Jeez. Um, but yeah, it just like I love that this whole incident is like potentially going to be triggered by Starfleet, the Federation. And you know, he was like, and Maxwell, when he's making his big speech to O'Brien, he's like, and I, I couldn't help but think of sometimes of the the United States perception of itself. It's like we don't start wars, you know, we don't kill innocent people. And I'm like, dude, you literally, 
literally just invaded like this people's sovereign territory and killed 700 people. What do you mean we don't do this? You just did. <laughs> it's a, almost like a lesson in physics, how it happened to him. You mm. know, it's coming back and rebounding. He's doing it to the Cardassians. Yeah. But it's all justified in his mind now. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, it's not anyone is susceptible to this. Like, if you think it's just the Cardassians, then, I mean, yeah, you see what happens to Maxwell, like, gets him into trouble. I'm not going to win this one, am I, Chief? <laughs> nope. Oh, God, that line. <laughs> At the end, I, might, I, was, I was thinking about America with um, what Picard was saying, but just that kind of view of the United States as the world police, yeah. like, here to keep everything in check. Mm-hmm. I, I could see it being like... Um, I can't remember the the character's name, but when Picard tells him to give the coordinates to the yeah uh, um, to locate the ship where he obeys the captain's orders, but very very reluctantly. So I wonder if that could be some of on Maxwell's ship. You do have people that are complicit in it to an extent, but following orders, following orders, however crazy they think they are. Mm. It's very interesting to also point out that this episode aired during the uh, uh, short-lived, at least in terms of the official ground war, this episode aired during the Gulf War. Um, This was right when America was, you know, leading the coalition against Iraq, Um, which is an interesting kind of like, because in this episode, Picard is trying to do everything like... What's interesting about Star Trek is a lot of times the Federation, because you brought up the world police, you know, thing and like a lot, in many ways, the Federation is an idealized vision of the United States, this kind of melting pot with all these different worlds and the Federation, like it, it's like an idealized version of it, but it definitely spurs from like Kennedy, like Kennedy's America when Gene Roddenberry created the show in the sixties, like he made Captain Kirk this very like Kennedy like figure and that's kind of where this comes from. And so it's very interesting then. So like we're getting Picard, who's this ideal version, who's doing everything he can to avoid war. And then at the same exact time, the United, like if the Gulf war, it's like looking for any excuse to invade Iraq. And then, uh, you know, fascinating parallel that it's like at the same time, you know, um, Interesting little counter-programming for American audiences at home. Because at the time, I, I remember as a kid when that was happening, it was like, yeah, get those Iraqis. Got to go to Iraq. Yeah. For some reason. Um, and we also have to real quick talk about you know Ben Maxwell. He's the real antagonist of the story. Um, how do we think he works as like... Um, uh, the villain what's our feeling on on maxwell as a character what it had me thinking of was have either of you watched dr strangelove yes he reminded me of a more believable version of colonel jack d ripper mm-hmm. who does not realize <laughs> on some level that they are no longer at war is just in a constant attack mindset and i also liked the point that they brought up of you have somebody where what they know is fighting, so they don't know what to do when when they can't do that, when mm. when things are at peace. Mm. Yeah, well, Brian even says, it's like, if he thinks his back is up against the wall, like, he'll fight, and that's basically his attitude for everything, seemingly. Um, he also says, don't turn your back on him, which Picard does at the end of the episode. Mm. Very pointedly, too. Just kind of that, no, 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 no. Let the glasses go. <laughs> we will be watching. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's the motherfucking. Um, yeah, didn't you say this? That like, like, um, this is the the actor. You said it, Dallas. Oh, he's the prison warden in the Shawshank. In the in Shawshank, like you said, I'm like, he is. <laughs> wow, like f- never clicked until now that yeah. you said that. I'm like, oh, that is him. Also, the sadistic prison guard in the Shawshank Redemption is the voice of Mr. Krabs. Whoa. <laughs> a little, a little trivia. Amazing, amazing <laughs> bit of trivia. Um, Six Degrees of SpongeBob <laughs> and Shawshank. <laughs> it, all lead, it all leads. 
<laughs> there's, there's always six degrees from between those two things. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, interesting little kind of bit of trivia. So the writer for this episode, Jerry Taylor, her whole idea for this episode was she was doing basically uh, what she imagined a Star Trek take on Heart of Darkness would be. Um, and like specifically with like the Ben Maxwell character and this, you know, this former, this soldier who can't quite come to terms with like the enemy, not being the enemy anymore and going rogue and very much like apocalypse now, of course. Um, and I never thought about that until like I read it, I was like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's right. Star Trek heart of darkness. That's interesting because I did not think of heart of darkness, but I did think of apocalypse now, which is a loose adaptation of it. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about, I think it's Lieutenant Kilgore, Robert Duvall's character, mm-hmm. where he was almost kind of a, I don't want to say sillier version, but a, definitely a more flamboyant version of Maxwell mm-hmm. in that he, he thrives in war and is constantly in a warlike mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very interesting. Um, and also, yeah, d- d- putting the this is a good, a good example of like one of the reasons I like Star Trek is like it can kind of take stories and then plug it into a Star Trek lens so because uh, in this one you get a lot of characters acting like Picard and O'Brien are able to like like O'Brien's able to come to terms you know with his feelings with the Cardassians to some degree and Picard is able to like stay the course and do the exact right thing and Whereas to say like in Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now, you don't quite <laughs> get that. Um, but very, very valuable. Um, there's a lot of good scenes in this, I felt like. A lot of good one-on-ones. Um, the, the scene with Picard and O'Brien in the transporter room, that where Picard just kind of goes in there to like, a lot. the ranks feel kind of dropped. And he's like, hey, just tell me, like, what do you think about this guy and what's going on? That was a good scene too. Yeah, just little moments of enlightenment for O'Brien throughout the episode, like as he goes on his path to healing, and then yeah. finally at the end singing that song with his captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the behind-the-scenes people like ranked that as one of their favorite like scenes, like in the show. Um, I'm like, yeah, that's a good one for sure. It was very evocative. You could just feel them going to a different time and place together. Yeah, it's not the thing; it's the thing underneath the thing. Mm. that you're mad about and that you need to deal with mm. Maxwell. Yeah. Yeah. His family. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Goldman says at the beginning, like, Oh, this, uh, this is vengeance. Oh yeah. And O'Brien like, <laughs> no, couldn't be. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought a little bit about that. I was thinking of a cycle you've gotten with immigration to the United States where a lot of times oppressed groups will oppress another group down the line where you have discrimination against like German and Irish people in the late 19th century. And then you have people of German and Irish descent discriminating against Mexicans or Central Americans. So I thought that a little bit with Maxwell where he can see how awful it was that his family and those children are massacred and now he's doing exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. But does, doesn't see the difference. Mm -mm. Not until it's too late. Um, yeah, really good episode. Um, I think this is one that like, I remember what, like as a kid watching this one and liking it, but I think it was a little too, you know, um, there were some of the philosophical ones that I was able to latch onto as a kid, like Darmok. This one is much more like political. And it's like, if you don't have an adult context for some of this stuff, like for me, like as a kid, I was like, why would Maxwell do this and you know and why aren't the Cardassians the bad guys like (laughs) so I think this is one of those ones that like as I've grown older come to appreciate more and more um and really enjoy um and anytime I do like Star Trek watch series and I hit this one I'm like no that means Deep Space Nine's coming down the road so that's always one thing that gets me excited (laughs) Space Nazis Space Nazis Lizard Space Nazis to get you excited no yeah I I think the Cardassians, they're one of my favorite Star Trek adversaries. Like, because like they go they go into some interesting stuff where their government is so fucking awful and evil. Like when they in D Space Nine when they finally start showing you Cardassian, it's like 
they live in a fucking like 1984 like totalitarian state but like the military is taken taken over and all the citizens just have to and then when you meet a lot of like the just Cardassian people you're like they're they're all so awesome for the most part except for people like Dukat but it's like you realize it's like oh no and so they get into some really interesting stuff with the Cardassians like really sticky messy it's like the future where the fan, fanatics won basically right yeah. Yeah. right um all right. Well, thank you for coming on, Dallas. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. A lot of I mean, the episode wasn't fun, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun watching it. <laughs> Rather serious. Rather serious. Fun talking about it. Yay. Um, yeah, we'll definitely have to have you come on. Because you've only watched Next Gen. Yeah, that's true. I have not seen any of the original series. Yeah, maybe when we get into some Deep Space Nine, or yeah. some Voyager, or some other stuff, we'll, we'll bring you on and have yeah, you come check it out. I love that. Um, awesome. Um, well, everyone, thank you at home for listening. Um, next week we're going to be starting a new twofer. Um, in this instance, we are going to be starting a romantic twofer. Um, we've looked at a few, uh, Trek episodes up to this point. They've had some romantic elements and it's been a mixed bag to say the least. <laughs> Um, I don't know if the franchise has cracked that egg. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of nerds writing about romance, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you got it, a 50-50 shot there. <laughs> or maybe more like 70-30. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, yeah, so for our... <laughs> that's exactly what it is, just nerds writing about romance. It's like... Mm, <laughs> can they do, do it? it. <laughs> <laughs> Easy does it. Um, yeah, so we'll get to kind of take more of a, a closer look to see how Star Trek tackles romance uh, in a couple different ways. Um, so for our first episode, uh, next week, we're going to be watching Cupid, um, which of course means the return of our favorite omnipotent trickster god, Q. Um, and the return of Q also means that our good friend Jake Barnes will be coming on the show once again as he's been coming on to talk about all of the Q episodes. So that should be a lot of fun. Um, he has so many fans. Did you hear that? Yeah, I know. The, 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 the hordes of Jake Barnes fans out there. Yeah, Jake, 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 Jake. <laughs> um, all right, yeah. Next week, Cupid and Jake Barnes. Um, thanks again, everyone. Thank you, Dallas. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Jaren. Thank you, Aaron, as always. Thank you, um, people. And we'll see you all next time. Hopefully not along the Cardassian border on a Cardassian <laughs> supply ship. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Okay, <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to share us your own Star Trek story, you can email us at storiedstartrek at gmail.com. Or you can visit our Discord server. You can find us by clicking on the link in the show description.